welcome to the Journal of American History podcast for December 2011. Today's podcast, we welcome Kim Phillips Fine, assistant professor in the Gallatin School at New York University. Professor Fine has written a state-of-the-field essay on contemporary American conservatism for the December 2012 issue of the Journal of American History. Kim, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for doing this. Thank you, Ed. It's great to be here. Let me start with something that you wrote in your state of the field. The challenge for scholars of conservatism today is no longer to revive historical interest in the right or to convince others of its importance. Rather, the real project is to see conservatism with a new perspective, to understand its tenacity through the liberal years, its long-standing relationship to the state and to economic elites, and how its history is intertwined with that of liberalism, as well as the ways its ascendance reflected not only its own political dynamism, but also broader challenges in American society. This is a great paragraph to begin our discussion. So could you reflect more on what you wrote, Kim? Well, my article starts from the assumption that the recent historical scholarship on conservatism has been among the richest in, the, in American political history. And the expansion of the field of writing about conservatism is really quite recent. There was very little writing about the right as a distinct political force in the 1950s, the 1960s, and the 1970s. In a sense, during these years, which were also, not coincidentally, the years of liberal ascendance, many scholars adopted the attitude of the consensus historians of the mid-20th century, especially Richard Hofstadter. And the idea that Hofstadter in particular advanced in a couple of essays about the right that in some ways became the dominant ones through this period was the idea that everybody of political power and significance, both political parties, most leading politicians, had accepted the expanded federal government that had emerged after the Second World War and general mores of liberal tolerance and secularism. And that those few conservatives who remained on the American political scene in the John Birch Society, for example, which was started in the late 1950s, or around the Goldwater campaign, which Hofstadter famously described as pseudo-conservative, were dismissed as cranks and fanatics who were driven by a sense of resentment, a loss of status, and a, and a feeling of anxieties provoked by downward mobility rather than a coherent politics. And the assumption of many people, of many liberals, and perhaps even people on the left during this period of time, was that the conservative movement would, gener- would disappear in time. And I think part of what happened is that events simply proved this wrong, as this became evidently false, most clearly and obviously in the 1980s, after Ronald Reagan won election and then re-election in 1984, historians became increasingly aware of the need to reevaluate the field and to find ways to explain how and why conservatism has remained such a key part of American life, why conservatives and conservative movement institutions are so important, and how the movement has shaped American politics more broadly. And I think that's what's happened over the past 15 or so years. So my essay aims to sum up this recent historiography and to offer some reflections on where the field might go from here. Kim, please talk with us a bit about the issue of the definition of conservatism. 
Well, one of the hard things about writing about conservatism, I think, is that so many things in American life might seem to qualify as conservative. So what really is conservative? Is conservatism a philosophical position? Is it a political mood? Is it a partisan? I mean, do we associate it simply with the Republican Party instead of the Democratic Party? Is anything that is not that? Or is it, a, is it more bipartisan than that? Some people, some historians and some political philosophers see the ad, you know, kind of advocating free market capitalism as a central conservative position. But of course, that's actually the, the position held by much of the political spectrum. Some people see cultural and religious conservatism as the central themes, but of course that those values deeply held conflict in certain ways with free market individualism. Some people have observed that while being conservative or supposedly conservative, the right often seeks to bring about dramatic social changes. So the definition of the question of how to define conservatism is complicated, although maybe not more so than for any political or intellectual movement. So for the purposes of my essay, I use the definition that I think many historians have used in practice, which is in some ways more a historical definition than one that aims at staking out a philosophic, the philosophical boundaries of conservatism. And the most recent wave of scholarship has generally treated conservatism as a political and social movement that arose after World War II, that was anti-communist, that, that proclaimed a faith in the free market and an opposition to the welfare state, and that also was committed to some vision of traditional gender roles. And the historians have argued that this movement started among a relatively small group of activists in the post-war years and ultimately built a movement that came to power with Ronald Reagan. So in my essay, I talk about the major ways of scholarship that have been organized around this vision of conservatism, and then also about some of the problems with the framework of seeing conservatism as a political movement, as a social movement. Thank you, Kim. Uh, your state of the field is, of course, uh, one of a number of really interesting articles that we continue to do at the JH on contemporary American conservatism. And you mention a number of newer works, path-breaking works on communities, on gender, on intellectual history, on suburban studies, on religion, on the economic dimensions of conservatism. Uh, you can't mention all of these, of course, in a short podcast, but uh, among those fields, what are some of the really path-breaking, challenging works that come to mind? Just to give a sense of how these works fit, the sort of early work on American conservatism focused on the things people were writing in the 1980s and early 1990s, I would say, focused on the rise of the right in American politics as a backlash, a kind of backlash against the radical social movements of the 1960s. There was a strong focus on the role of race and racism in the movement. Some historians saw national politicians playing on race and exploiting racism to win votes and support for a conservative economic project. Here I'm thinking partly of the work of Dan Carter and his a tremendous biography of George Wallace. Other scholars argued that a grassroots politics of racism emerged out of local struggles over desegregation of schools and that this was motivated largely by a kind of economic anxieties in the 1970s, but it helped to split working class, white, ethnic people away from the Democratic Party. And here I'm thinking of Ronald Formisano's Boston Against Busing, 
or um, Jonathan Ryder's book about Canarsie. The more recent scholarship has not been directly opposed to this vision, but it has supplemented it with a narrative that sees conservative movement institutions having their roots much deeper in the post-war period. They didn't emerge as a result of a backlash against the radicalization of the movements in the 1960s, but the, sh the strength of that backlash was shaped by the fact that many of these people had been mobilizing all along. And this recent literature has shifted our understanding of who conservative movement activists were. Early accounts focused more on the Reagan Democrats, kind of working class white people who switched their party affiliations. But the newer scholarship really challenges the old Hofstadter view of conservatives as marginal or downwardly mobile. And we know now that many activists were prosperous, successful participants in the post-war boom. They were middle-class professionals, business people, not the marginalized people that Hofstadter had depicted. So some of the really important books, I think, staking out this argument are Lisa McGurr's Suburban Warriors, which is an account, a social history of Orange County, California, um, one of the communities that helped to foster conservative movement actors and institutions in the post-war period. Rick Perlstein's book, Before the Storm, about the Goldwater campaign, which describes how, although it was viewed as a failure at the time helped to train a generation of conservative activists. There is Don Critchlow's work on Phyllis Schlafly, describing how the, one of the people who we see as a major opponent of the Equal Rights Amendment and emerged you know, in, in the 1970s actually was had a long history in the conservative movement extending back throughout the post-war period. There is the work of people like Joseph Crespino on the South, showing how Crespino's book on Mississippi describes how Southern politics shouldn't be seen in, in the post-war years, shouldn't be seen as a kind of space of reaction, but it, that it actually also helped to contribute to the rise of a national right. Um, the South wasn't an outlier, but developed the politics in tandem with conservatism moving, emerging elsewhere around the country. And I think even in intellectual history, there has been a shift away from a kind of emphasis on a vision of conservatism bringing together libertarian, traditionalist, and anti-communist themes, a framework set out by George Nash in his book, The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America Since 1975, and more work recently on how conservative activists use ideas in their movement and more focus on the role of free market ideas and institutions, as in the work of Jennifer Burns on Ayn Rand. So that's just a few different high points of the recent scholarship, I think, but it gives you a sense of how the field is moving. Indeed. Thank you. And historians also are pushing back in time, aren't they, the uh, origins of modern American conservatism? Could you say a little bit about that work? Yeah, well, I think that, so I think that much of the work has, has outlined the growth of this movement in the post-war years, but that the scholars are starting to question a bit the framework of that, that movement narrative. And to, to, to trace the roots of the movement that emerged in the post-war period back into the 1920s or even earlier. And I think this is important because it challenges the vision of conservatism as a kind of true grassroots movement. It means examining the connections that conservative activists have long had to, um, to business people, 
to people who actually exercise political power, as in Beverly Gage's forthcoming work on the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover as conservative movement heroes um, who also happen to occupy you know, central positions in the federal government, or work on the local level. And here I'm thinking partly of Elizabeth Tandy Shermer, among other people whose work has appeared in the JAH, who has written about kind of business conservatism on the local level in Phoenix. And it's the contribution of civic boosters to creating a sort of haven of opposition to post-war liberalism in Sunbelt states. And taken together, I think that part of the thrust of this work, both the kind of effort to see how what emerges in the post-war years is really building on ideas and um, institutions that had been present prior to the uh, post-war moment is the it, it challenges the idea that conservatism was originally marginal in post-war American politics, and suggests that we have to see the ways that conservative power was exercised throughout the 20th century, rather than interpreting it as a rising insurgent challenge to the status quo. So I think that that work on the the deep roots of conservatism, I think we'll see more and more of it in years to come. You also said some really interesting things about the need to place the study of American conservatism in a global context. Are there already promising studies uh, that do that? And are you aware of uh, work that's being done in that area? There have been some strong uh, collections of essays on the transnational right, and especially actually on on far-right movements, kind of comparing how the far-right emerges and manifests itself differently in different countries. I think that the the transnational project, I, I think it's especially important because it helps us think about the contemporary, the sort of post-1973 rise of what people like David Harvey describe as neoliberalism. Or the, I guess that there has been a sort of set of challenges to the welfare state in many different countries throughout this period. And I think one of the questions that I also ask in the essay is, can we see these kinds of challenges as the result of conservative movement power, or do we need to think somehow differently about the changes in the broader political and economic framework that both shift the whole framework for liberals as well as providing an opening for conservatives? I think there are also a set of important questions about the way that American conservatism, maybe especially intellectual conservatism, emerges in a transnational context. And here I'm thinking partly of Angus Bergen's forthcoming work on the Mont Pelerin Society, which was an international organization devoted to reviving the ideal of the free market, started by Friedrich von Hayek, who who plays a very important role in the American scene as well, and and really kind of showing how this is an international group of people coming together to think about these questions. So in some ways, it's shifting, I mean, looking at how ideas that we think of as being very rooted in the American context actually are developed collectively by a group of people who are not all from the United States at this moment. And I was uh, fascinated with a comment that you made about how so many of these studies are about the success of uh, the, the right. And you very smartly said that we need sober-minded analysis 
certainly of where and when the right was successful, but also where and when it was not, and Mm -hmm. made some comments particularly on the complexity of the 1980s in this regard. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, here I'm drawing partly on the recent work of Julian Zelizer and Meg Jacobs, who have argued that just as we see, just as, as, as historians writing in an earlier moment may have been wrong to see the post-World War II years as years of liberal dominance, largely ignoring the developing power of conservatism, so too we shouldn't see the post-1980 era as one of straightforward conservative power, that liberalism and even the left remain very important during these years, and that there is a continued struggle. And I would say in some ways this is actually probably especially true in the 1980s, um, that there's a continued struggle over the shape and terrain of the the state, over the reach of the welfare state, over the power of labor unions, um, over the legacies of the civil rights movement. And I think you know, more broadly, the social movements and institutions that emerge in the post-war years don't simply disappear after um, Reagan is elected. The anti-war movement from Vietnam comes back in a new shape in the anti-nuclear movement. Um, The legacies of the civil rights movement are many and continue to be felt at various different levels. So I think it's, it's, and, and of course the feminism and gay rights continue to make progress for women and for gays and lesbians up you know, to this to this day, so there's a way in which it's easy to see this moment as one of conservative power and overlook the develop you know the the legacies that continue through the, the period and make it one of struggle. At the same time, I also think that um, you know I think it, it, there is there are ways in which the post 1973 moment to the present is really distinctly different from the post war years, and among them is the recent stunning rise in income inequality, economic inequality, and the growing power of business and politics. And I think one of the questions is whether this is the product of the conservative movement and its activism and the policies that it was able to successfully press forward, or whether it needs to be explained in another way. Kim, can you say a little bit uh, for this final question about your own work? Uh, what, What are you doing now? Sure. I'm writing a history of New York City during the 1970s and especially the fiscal crisis of those years, the episode in 1975 and 1976 when New York almost went bankrupt and was forced to dramatically restructure its government, laying off tens of thousands of city workers and beginning a period of retrenchment um, that really shaped the city in the late 1970s and 1980s. And I think this project, I came to it because I was very struck by how much there, how much work there was in the conservative press about New York and seeing New York City as a kind of example of the inevitable failure of liberalism. But I guess, I mean, I, I should say my first book was about Invisible Hands was about the role of business in the conservative movement over the post-war years. And so I initially came to this out of looking at the conservative movement press, but I have become drawn to it partly because I think it actually offers the story of, of New York 
and the role of the city in the national context offers a way of thinking about the role of political economy and the significance of this kind of dramatic, visible failure of the state when the state actually almost goes bankrupt and its role in reshaping the broad spectrum of American politics. So not just the ways that conservatives are able to seize hold of this story, but the way that Democrats and liberals and people on the left all kind of have to reposition themselves in response to the dramatic events that are generated by the city's near bankruptcy. Thank you, Kim. We have been speaking this morning with Professor Kim Phillips-Fine, assistant professor at the Gallatin School of Individualized Studies at New York University. Kim, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for writing this state of the field on contemporary American conservatism for the JH. Thank you. It's been an honor. The Organization of American Historians holds several events each year for researchers and educators in American history. To learn more about the OAH Annual Meeting, the OAH Community College Workshop, and other ways to connect with researchers and educators, visit the OAH website at www.oah.org meetings. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. Thank you for listening to the JH Podcast. Please join us in February for our next podcast. If you have questions or comments, please email us at jahcast at oeh.org. Thank you.